Because the Fast Five fight scene doesn't count, though hilarious and hilariously sweaty. In honor of Kingsman's Secret Service, what's your favorite comedy action scene? I'm Katie Rich, and because I'm going first, I'm taking the bar fight set to Queen's Don't Stop Me Now in Shaun of the Dead. Totally, because you're going first. I'm Dave with the Seven. I'm going to have to go with the Goro fight from Mortal Kombat, because with how many arms he has and with the ball kicking, it's totally a comedy. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with the James Bond film, The Living Daylights, when Bond outsleds the bad guys on a cello case. Hilarious. It's pretty good. And I'm David Ehrlich, and while there are any number of Jackie Chan scenes that I could choose, I'm going to go with the underneath the train fight scene in Legend of Drunken Master. Uh, but all of the, I don't even know if that's the funniest scene in the movie, but it's certainly the one that sticks with me. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 58 for Tuesday, February 10th, 2015, the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. We have one new review to share with you all, and David is so excited because it's a really nice one. Uh, also, mostly because of the headline, which is, I appreciate this show. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, <laughs> from Mr. or Mrs. B. Forte. Uh, it says, Fighting in the War Room is a consistent highlight of my podcast listening each week. I love that Katie Patches, Dave, and David each bring a unique perspective and voice to their reviews. And then the show takes time to discuss topics and issues facing the film industry. They cover everything from small, limited-run independent films to giant blockbuster mega-franchises with the same amount of passion and insight. The Quarterquel episodes are particularly enjoyable because of each host's willingness to share their personal stories and connections to films. The most recent Quell, about movies reflecting their current place in life, was especially moving and something you'd be hard-pressed to find on any other film podcast. So thank you, Fitwork Crew, for all that you do to produce the entertaining and thoughtful show. Thank you, thank B. Forte. You. I believe that's Mr. Listening. B. Forte. That is an often participant of our lightning round questions. Ah. That was a uh, that was a terrific review. Thank you so much for that. I appreciated it. Yes. Because it's Valentine's Day and because it's on Amazon streaming and because Patches and his girlfriend watched it, we wanted to talk about Sleepless in Seattle, which I rewatched on Patches' recommendation, having, you know, maybe not seen it in its entirety in a long time and loved it. And then I was really surprised when it was Patches' idea to talk about it and he didn't even like it that much. (laughs) Because you're a man who who also doesn't appreciate an affair to remember, which I can, you know, I can understand. Um, But the, the question you brought up that I thought was really interesting is, was Nora Ephron a good director? Because it's not something that anyone really ever talks about about her films. I mean, they're well-written and they're funny and they're very charming and they have great romances. Um, but I have never thought about her as a director. And I wanted to know what made you want to talk about that part of this movie specifically. Well, I think a lot about, and especially in recent years with like Lena Dunham kind of being this Nora Ephron acolyte, a real admirer and publicly and kind of like enhancing her persona, her, her image in the eyes of a lot of young men and women. Um, I, I was curious about, I mean, my girlfriend also just read this book of essays by Nora Ephron. The, the name escapes me. but I the, feel bad about my neck, the recent one? He, uh, maybe, maybe. That was the last one. I <laughs> Name all of Nora Ephron's books. I cannot uh, do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, having picked up and, and read some, I mean, she's just such a sharp wit on the page. And, like, reading 
her essays she's done in magazines and reading obituaries and reading or listening to her give tributes, you know, uh, after Mike Nichols passed away, uh, clips of Nora Ephron made the rounds because they worked together on, on several films, uh, uh, Heartburn, Heartburn yeah. Silkwood, um, and she gave a lovely tribute to him and she's just so well-spoken. She's an amazing presence, an amazing voice. And I really treasure her movies, especially as a writer. I mean, we, we talk about when Harry met Sally every Valentine's Day because websites need content. So they're always constantly <laughs> ranking the greatest. <laughs> Because That's it's the a only great reason. movie, all right? No, just the oh, website seed content. Yes, the void but it's calls. also a great movie, which is why I could stand the listicle making. Um, but but when I think about her movies that she has directed, I know that a lot of people love Sleepless in Seattle. A lot of people love You've Got Mail. Um, but for me, I, I went back and rewatched it and... I, I was just thinking that this the movie is kind of limp in my mind. I mean, I like Tom Hanks, um, and this was this was the first movie I think that he did with Meg Ryan. They're they're kind of like rom com relationship. No, uh, it was uh, Joe jo versus Volcano. Joe versus Volcano. Got a brain fair. cloud. Not definitely not a classic. Uh, Sleeve in Seattle is superior to Joe versus the Volcano. I don't know about that, but but I just anyway. thought that the the wit that Nora Ephron shows in a lot of her writing isn't really as present in Sleepless in Seattle. I mean, it ha- it has very funny bits, but I don't feel the bites. I don't really feel the human element that makes her her writing so iconic, so so full of voice, so full of Nora Ephron and what defines her. And I feel like it's because of the direct you know the directorial choices or the lack thereof and what mike nichols was able to do with her material was much more successful i don't know what why why does this movie work so well for you katie i mean it works for me because i have a real soft spot for the traditional rom-com that it, for me is embodied by sleepless in seattle because i mean i'm the same age as tom hanks's son in that movie like that movie is totally right for- now you are yes exactly oh. i'm eight years old i mean to tell you guys this oh for a while God. <laughs> but that movie is totemic for me and basically everyone my age in the same way that unfair to remember is to the people in this movie it's like the classic rom-com template and i was so struck in the, especially in the beginning of the movie where uh, you see meg ryan going to christmas dinner with her family with bill pullman her fiance and bill paxton no bill pullman you sure? I wish it was Bill Paxton. Well, no, actually, Bill Pullman does a really good job of being the you know nebbishy fiance. He has a, he has a, he is the back. He, he's the Ralph Bellamy. He has a humidifier. You guys, I mean, how <laughs> lame can you get? We have three humidifiers in my house. Um, and I thought it was the, the family is so funny. Like you've got this one guy talking about his bee allergy, and the dialogue moves so fast. And, and I admit, like it doesn't move that fast throughout the whole thing because it's a movie that isn't. It's kind of tearing down the cynics who would who populate Nora Ephron's writing, who I think Nora Ephron could be. You know, it's all about Meg Ryan believing in fate and signs, and it's really about the opposite of that and kind of trying to tear down that part of yourself. But I think it's really witty and really unabashedly romantic in this way that if you start thinking about it too much, like, the reasons that they come together don't make a ton of sense. But I felt so happy to kind of... You know, I know how this movie ends. I felt happy to go along with but it. It actually which is, uses an affair to remember the movie that it's basically a remake of, as it's it's in they're watching an affair to remember in the movie. So oh, yeah. it can't actually be as romantic as you want it to be because it's acknowledging in a meta way its own. How uh, does that inherently slight. make it less romantic? Yeah, I'm just for me for my you know personal opinion here. Uh, Are you yeah. attached to an affair to remember? No, I just like, wanted to take like the daring step. It's like saying a movie can't read a poem because that poem existed as a piece of art previously. Well, no, I, I made that I'm point about a scene in, uh, in Still Alice with Angels in America, which is I never I had not made that. No, the difference here is the movie is an affair to remember. It's not just 
Menking mention. Not. Uh, it's, not, it's not being referential. It could totally be a movie could be referential and still be highly emotional. I'm just saying it's that really acknowledging your your spine, you're not taking the plunge in a way that I want to. I mean, when Harry Met Sally is pretty inventive. Like it was doing a style of rom com that no one had done before. Yeah. Like, but like not everything needs to be when Harry Met Sally. Like invent the the kind of the thing I love about rom coms is that they're not often that inventive. Like as soon as you see your attractive leads, you know that they're going to get together and you're going to get to watch it happen. And Sleepless in Seattle does they're a really reassuring. good job. reassuring. Yeah, they're reassuring. And Sleepless in Seattle does a really good job of casting these two people who you root so hard to get together, even though they're never on screen together. That's kind of inventive. You don't see them together until the very last scene, except for like I, that one scene across the street, which doesn't count. I think the way they're characterized <laughs> is, is astounding, is a real success because that feels like such an extension of Nora Ephron. What I'm saying is by by uh, nodding to the source material that you're ripping from, that to be some sort of commentary on rom-com logic, to uh, invest in true romance, um, but by, giving, by saying that it, it's like a movie kind of undermines a little bit. I want this movie to just be 100% romantic because I feel like Nora Ephron is capable of that, and I see that in her standalone writing, uh, just not in this directorial vehicle for her. Well, and you- I should say that I think she's more successful in other movies she's directed, like Mixed Nuts, which is not <laughs> a rom-com, but I think that one works as a kind of crazy farce, and she has more control of her camera and her direction in that, and is a little more playful. And, you know, Sleepers in Seattle is a little sleepy, if you, if Ooh, I well, I mean, but could you imagine how sleepy it would be if it didn't have the slight meta angle that, you know, these people are aware of the difference between Hollywood romance and the supposed real romance they're living out for Hollywood? Like, you know, it's like the the romantic comedy is done is so close to like a formula that it kind of has to be like twisted in a little way. And I think like Sleepless in Seattle that's so close to an affair to remember without acknowledging an affair to remember would be much weirder to you. And maybe even sleepier. And just like, why and, am and I even watching this? cynical in a way. It would, yeah, like, it would be... By acknowledging it, it, it professes this love for an affair to remember that's really important to the, how the movie plays out. Yeah, I mean, it's it just seems like that, that little twist it deepens their understanding of what a romance should be beyond what the characters of an affair to remember is. And it influences all of us. Like, I think the idea that a lot of people are influenced by what they think rom-coms should be is really important to that movie. And I don't, I don't think I agree with what the movie eventually determines, that it should be more like it is in a romance. But I like that it goes for it. Wait, why don't you like that? Because I don't think that the idea that you have to, the first time you touch somebody's hand, you know that you're going to be together forever and things are going to be perfect. I think it's bunk. Like, that's not how any relationship is going but to actually work. you can believe in that. You can believe in that possibility. Well, I mean, you can. I think that's a very positive. You can, but then if you, I mean... If, like Meg Ryan, you wind up with someone, you're like, well, wait, I haven't felt that. Like, are you going to ruin your life over that? I think it, I mean, it sets up things. It makes people go crazy. In relationships, I mean, the Bill Pullman thing doesn't make sense because she found Tom Hanks. But, like, not all relationships are going to be that. I think believing in that is why a lot of people marry people they don't belong with. I don't know. It's that honesty and it's that, like, dropping cynicism, acknowledging that cynicism exists and dropping it and allowing yourself to be open to possibility like love at first sight or something. That's what Nora Ephron is to me. That's what her essays do. You know, they bounce back from tragedy or they look back in the past and realize that they should have gone for something or they, that they did. And here's why it's paying off. Like that's what Nora Ephron's voice is to me. And that's why I wish sleepless in Seattle didn't have this crutch of an affair to remember in a way uh, that it could blow past that and just invest in love at first sight. That's well, wonderful. What, what did you, uh, 
I mean, you didn't like You Got Mail then? I've never seen You've Got Mail. You've got- never oh. seen You've Got Mail? What were you no. doing in high school? I was emailing loved ones <laughs> from afar. No, actually, th- and this was the None first of time I've seen Sleepless in Seattle. You were in high school. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know what was wrong with you. You should check out You Got Mail because it definitely doesn't have the metatextual crush and the slightly more combative relationship that might kick it out of what, I don't know. The there there's a tad bit more cynicism, but in uh, you've got mail that might work for you. Well, at least until the end, because and the hilarious twist about you've got mail is that uh, Tom Hanks's megastore would now be out of business, and uh, the community bookstore would be the only thing that could thrive. I I, I like my rom com specifically dated. It's very nice. <laughs> yeah, it actually I haven't watched it in a long time, but I feel like rewatching it and get you know hearing that you've got mail bloop would be really fun. Yeah, no, I like to like say anything involves like mixtapes and always will, and they'll never redo that with like MP3 players. It's perfect. Yeah. Well. Oh my God. They, don't they, say that around Hollywood to too say. loudly. Yeah, they narrowly <laughs> avoided the TV now. version. spent the weekend catching up on Empire which is an enormous hit on Fox it's kind of I I read it referred to in Vulture I think as literally the Super Bowl for African American women like it gets these out of control ratings Um, and it's (laughs) literally the Super Bowl like it's literally it literally gets the same ratings amongst that demographic as that is hilarious which I'm I'm not sure I I haven't looked into it but I would bet that doesn't exist with any other fictional show for that for yeah, another, another no, that, demographic. that needs to be on the poster i would <laughs> literally the super bowl i mean they don't need anything on the poster like they've got it made at this point um and it's executive produce uh, a couple of episodes are directed by lee daniels i think he might have written some of them too alongside danny strong who was maybe had the most unlikely career for like that short guy who was on buffy i didn't watch buffy so i can't be as shocked by it as some other people but it's very surprising that he's kind of had this screenwriting career. Um, and Pat, does you also watch Empire, which I'm very relieved by. I did. I, so first of all, I think the show is hugely entertaining. I quit Nashville because it got boring. Empire does not have that problem. And I also feel like it's exactly what Lee Daniels was born to do. Like Lee Daniels movies were always a little too high-pitched, overboiled for movies. Like they didn't have time to like get sucked into it. And it just wasn't the format in which you expected that. But Empire, like the minute Taraji P. Henson shows up on screen in like some insane outfit. And in the first episode, she says, I'm here to get what's mine like four times you totally get it like you've seen dynasty you're aware of the tropes of the of the yeah. nighttime soap and lee daniels is perfect at it so patches did you fall in love with this show the same way i have i actually did i was very surprised you know i well i i've seen four episodes so far and i, I thought there's back, only four. Oh, okay then i've seen all the episodes <laughs> and i thought back to our conversation about gone girl and what it meant to be like good trash and why we mm. can say it's trash in um in a in a positive light, and I you know it's funny I mean soap opera is key here. Lee Daniels makes soap opera movies, and finally he's making a soap opera soap opera. Yeah. Um, with just I mean a lot of fun music, the music world that they're in that Terrence Howard who plays Luscious Lion, Luscious Raji, Lion, Luscious Lion, that Luscious spelled whatever, almost Luscious. like Luscious. Yes, it's, it's, it's <laughs> when it's emblazoned on posters, it looks like Luscious. Um, and Taraji P Henson as Cookie Lion. Um, and these two are just, it's like Sopranos, but in, like, if 
Sean Puffy Combs was running the business or something. And or like it's, an insane version of Sean Puffy. Oh, he might be pretty insane. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, he seems kind of insane. But <laughs> it's it's extravagant. The music is great. The music uh, is really great, which I was... It, that's not easy to do, like have no. a new song every week on a TV show. But the key to the show, the key to the show is the interstitial music. <laughs> because she'll... Like, Taraji P. Henson will get in the back of the car and she'll be like, I need my stuff. And then the music goes, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and it is amazing. She's just growling like a lioness. She is incredible in this show. And everyone is really good. I mean, I appreciate the show because it's like tackling the, the homophobia in the rap world. Like, that's a weird thing to take on in your trashy soap opera that's being extravagant. That's all about like, like the youngest son is sleeping with an older woman. Courtney Love shows up. Yeah, she uh, hasn't shown up yet, though. Later I'm really excited. I mean, they just got all these crazy people in it. Um, and it seems to be escalating rapidly, like you said. And I, I, I don't know. I really appreciate, you know, Terrence Howard is not someone I like a lot in the movies, but here he is chewing up scenery. And I mean, it's so angry, too. Like the stuff they get into, again, with the homophobia and hip hop. I mean, they're, they said faggot on television, and that word just really struck me. I'm like, holy crap, this show is going for it. This show is like, it can be really silly, but it can re- be really poignant at the same time. I really enjoy Empire. <laughs> yeah, please wow. uh, watch Empire if you haven't. It is uh, so much better than Nashville. I haven't watched Scandal in a while, but I enjoy it more than Scandal, and it has great music. And Tragedy Henson, like... I cannot say enough what a blessing she is and how glad I am that, I mean, she got that Oscar nomination and then did got, not get nearly enough work as a result of it, which, in, you know, in some ways is unsurprising given the way that Hollywood treats black actresses, but she's amazing on Empire. Our colleague Devin Faraci of Badass Digest, who's been on the podcast a time or two, wrote an article uh, titled, What Are the Movies Anyway? Which basically suggests that the fact of new distribution platforms and the cinematic quality of television means that the line between feature films and television, or anything else really, has become really blurry. Um, he also points out Transparent on Amazon as a key example, because it's a TV show that doesn't actually air on a television, which... Is, to me, is not like the most interesting part of it, but I know you guys had a problem with it, so it's worth bringing up. Um, but I find the argument about feature films not being a valuable term anymore really compelling because, at, especially at the end of last year, I found it more frustrating than ever that TV shows like The Nick wouldn't qualify for a top 10 because they weren't technically feature films. Like, obviously, The Nick is a serialized story told over a long time. It's very long. Like, it's not a feature film by any traditional definition. But the way that we're watching them is so muddled and the way that, especially that I'm consuming a lot of movies, like seeing things later on my television, more so than, you know, during the VHS era. To me, it's a compelling idea that the feature film is kind of an art form that's dying out, especially because the movies that are in theaters are increasingly becoming theme park rides and maybe we don't want to call them feature films anyway. Um, David, I know this article doesn't hold a lot of weight for you, so why do you think, well, I, why do you think, think kids these days are going to care about what a feature is? I, I, I just think that there's sort of a confusion of terms because uh, the amorphousness of you know, visual storytelling these days does not make... Uh, the way you say it, it sounds like the feature film, uh, the uh, 80 to, you know, however long... Um, you know, if you're Lab Diaz, it can be nine hours, really. Um, feature film, it, just because it, the storytelling is more amorphous, doesn't make that obsolete. It doesn't. It's still, uh, you know, financially viable. 
Um, it, well, it, it's financially viable in a really specific way. Yeah, but it's uh, it, it's obsolete, dying out. I think these are just they immediately place the conversation in a ridiculous and needless place. Um, I think you can say you know you can say that they they are uh, you know things like Amazon shows. Um, web series, high maintenance, very successful on Vimeo. It had a huge full-page ad in the Times this weekend, which I've never seen before. Um, it had a bus ad here in New York. Yeah. Uh, you know, all, all these things are, are allowing more forms of visual storytelling than ever before. Vines, people are becoming rich off Vines. Very few, and, you know, it's still a sort of a derogatory term. And some, David is actually becoming rich uh, off I am a Vine superstar. <laughs> Just heavy. Uh, Congratulations. But it doesn't make, you know, it, it's it's democratizing the process more and more, but it doesn't make uh, feature films less valuable. It just makes it not the, the only way. Um, mm, but I would say I think- less visible or specialized would work because it's like what <clears throat> I, I, I think like also what the, the article kind of points out is like even a lot of the blockbusters or the things that people get in general release theaters or installments or sequels or they're even like pieces of something because everybody's really hot on like the interconnected narrative right now or then sequels because of always and remakes because <clears throat> I don't know we've still haven't gotten out of two decades of trying to figure out how that works for people but like I the the pure like you know I'm gonna tell you an encapsulated vision in a feature length and that's going to be the end of it. This isn't like the beginning of an intellectual property. It's sort of like now in the realm of very specialized people where it's like you have to do a one for you or one for them if you want to make it in the motion, the major well, motion it's, picture. Well, oh, it's actually less in the realm of the sort of rarefied special group of people than it has ever been before. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a- anybody could make a feature now, whereas even 20 years ago, it was unthinkable that if you, would, if you were even able to finish one, you were something of a sensation um but you know i agree with devin's piece that that the feature length format was not gifted from the heavens it did not arrive uh, on a stone tablet that moses carried down from the mountain and said this is what all uh, forms of visual it actually arrived on a, on a locomotive from the heavens and it came <laughs> at the audience through the screen exactly <laughs> exactly um but and you know things are going to be the dominant format only so long as people are are willing to see them as such because they have a financial incentive to do so. I mean, things are, you know, when we say, like, what is a movie, which is the, the title of Devin's piece. It's Cassay Cinema. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's whatever we call it. It's whatever we decide that it is. And uh, we will decide that something else is what we want to privilege with our, our money if uh, we get to that point. But um, I, don't, I don't want to be too defensive about the form of film as we know it, only to say that, uh, the fact that more people have access to it, uh, even if distribute, like you know, and there, there's always going to be this rocky period. Not always, but we're certainly in the middle of a rocky period of trying to figure out how to sell it. But it's not, it's not inherently less viable simply because there are more options. But I think uh, you need to find that balance where I can say that and still uh, recognize the value of exploring how to monetize and, and prioritize these other means of digital, digital storytelling, visual storytelling. 
to me, the biggest dividing line between TV and film always seemed to be the fact that anybody can make a movie. I mean, and especially now. And to be television, you have to get on a certain network. And TV is like, the hardest thing to make in the universe. I, well, so, but I high think... maintenance has proven that. <laughs> well, that's that not television. But what do we call television? Well, no, I but I, I mean, I I count that as television, like serialized storytelling. That way, I kind of disagree with well, that. Well, it's not on television. I know. So it's you know it's something new, but like that Unless kind of. Unless you watch it on your television on Vimeo. But like these guys are making that kind of small batch serialized storytelling instead of making a feature film at Sundance. They're finding that more viable and have found a lot of success doing that. And I don't see why more people wouldn't follow the same route. Why think, would they though? Because the Sundance movies that we see are like launch careers still. I mean some. Yeah, I mean, but not all web series just become magical television shows. <laughs> no, no. I mean, every every web series <laughs> is uh, that's it's just, just a thing. little seed that you plant. Put it on the web, and it but, will grow, grow. You can spend a hell of a lot less money to no, make a web series. <laughs> no, I mean, high maintenance costs almost nothing. Broad City didn't cost anything when they first started. I mean, you can do a lot with a little making these web series. Yeah, but this is also a crowded pool. There's millions of these web series that don't make it, and you're much better You off. think it's less crowded than independent film? I do. Or more crowded That's than exactly independent film? You're debating because you're saying that film is suddenly obsolete, so what it takes to make a great film uh, is is much more difficult than it is to throw together a web series. But even, like... I'm 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 in awe of Mark Duplass, the uh, the, the the Roger Corman of his day. What about uh, Jay Duplass, just, man? Like, huh? Fuck Jay Duplass. No one needs Jay Duplass. With Mark. Come on. It's all about Mark Duplass. He is the you don't most. Love transparent enough. What that guy can do. I remember back. Which in one Sunday, is like the Super Bowl um, for black women? Uh, for, for the record, I have no real opinion on on Jay Duplass. <laughs> sure, I'm sure he's fine. Yeah, his he's parent on- is great. Everybody should watch it. But, but Mark Duplass, I mean, he's, he's just going in every direction. They still make movies and he still produces movies. I mean, the guy produced like eight movies at Sundance this year. He produced a television was- series called Animals that is independently, it's just looking for a network. They, sh- they made the whole show and, and they're not going to put it on the web. They're looking for a network to put it out. Because they have the ability to, they have contact with the network. They're both on TV shows. Sure. But, I mean, this is more and more viable, creating your whole television show and not just throwing it on the web. I mean, I'm just saying nothing is obsolete because you see Mark Duplass, the person who could pretty much do whatever, still dabbling in every kind of arena. Um, no, I'm not saying it's obsolete, but I think the, dark, the Mark Duplasses of the world are increasingly going to go find things like high maintenance rather than focus on film because they recognize where success can be found. Well, And, and now, Duplass today, as we record making- this... Uh, as we record this, Joe Swamberg just signed up to do a studio film. So there you go. That guy has only made movies. He said, fuck television. Yeah, I don't know true. if he actually has said that. I can't quote him. But <laughs> I just imagine him saying, fuck television. I just get, I just get really uh, – I, I have a negative reaction to any sky is falling type approach to entertainment media. I mean I think um, the, the, sky, the sky might be a little bit lower than it – used to be um, when people I think I think more than anything it's just a cloudier people like to have a very clear understanding as to how the system works I don't know and, why you would want to if you enjoy storytelling on any level yeah you don't you want it? disruptors don't you want to yeah that's why I enjoyed the virtual reality section of Sundance so much this year this is why I enjoyed talking to crazy person Douglas Trumbull of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner fame earlier or last year about you know that, that guy is still all about the big big screen 
spectacle and using he did this short film called ufo tog with his magi process which is just this amazing 3d 4k 120 frames a second imagery and he just like that's that's his life he wants to be on the big screen and he think it has thinks it has a place in the world and you would say oh this is for this is for rides right all our movies are rides well the, the guy invented back to the future of the ride like that's his whole thing he does think it's amusement park rides and who cares? He, he also believes Back to the Future of the Ride is a film. And he's right. Interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is a sky's falling thing. I think this is just a forward-looking thing. Stories are still being told by really interesting voices. I don't think it's a loss for filmed storytelling or, you know, visual storytelling, which is what all of these things we're discussing are. So what do you think? You mean, what do I think? What do you think? I think that everything is going pretty well, actually. We've got more stories. I mean, there's more television to watch now than ever before, and that makes me really happy. And it's more ex- and the, the movies that are getting made and in, independently are getting are easier to see than ever. Say, there's I too think, much television. Um, yeah, I actually, I don't know. I, I, this is gonna, I hope this, somebody stopped me from derailing the conversation entirely. <laughs> I think television is far and away the least interesting thing that's happening in the media landscape. I think wow. uh, it's just ubiquitous and people latch on to a handful of good shows and a, a sea of I mean, mediocrity would be being generous. And um, they There's decided a lot of sameness in the age of television. And it's ridiculous. There are, you know, 10 good shows. You can, you can see there are more Oh my good God, movies. there's so many more uh, on, Oh, whatever. But, the, you know, I, I don't think that television is particularly exciting and it's very inaccessible uh, for creators. So... I, I, you know, HBO is doing exciting things, whatever. You know, I, I think that it's great to have all these options. Uh, I think the movies are doing just fine. Um, and, uh, but I, I think there's probably a more, I think we're getting too sidetracked by the economics of it all. And I think Devin's original article is really rooted in the um, semantics of it. And that's actually more interesting to me. Um, thinking like what is a movie and I sort of stand by the idea that a movie is whatever we decided is whatever we call a movie um, and a television a high maintenance Katie is such a perfect example because you know you're saying it's not it is television or it's not television but you can watch it you know very easily on your television yeah. uh, I, did, I did watch Vimeo. it on my television I, watched it, and, I paired my phone with my Apple TV and if something Whoa. is on your television, how is it not television? I, like, it's very, I think it is television. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, the reason it became economic is because the people who are going out and making these things, it used to be like if you wanted to go be a big Hollywood filmmaker, you go make your Sundance movie and you take it out and you do the whole circuit. Now it's actually easier to do a smaller scale idea with less of a budget that just shows you can execute an idea. And so the whole idea of a feature film becomes sort of like a passion idea. Like it needs to be a feature film, or at least that's the hope. But I mean, like economically, it's going to be important because like, I don't know if you're talking about like competitions or any sort of way where I'm going to display my film through distribution, whatever the cutoff is, is this a feature or not? And like that sort of line slides between what you're sort of distributing or doing. And it's like, what is it going to, well, I mean, oh, it's a no. leftover from a different way of selling films. And so now we need to come up with a different term for this way we're going to sell this amount of content. And sort of the, <laughs> the difference between, like, feature film and, like, television show is because, like, well, maybe I don't want to write 22 episodes that Netflix is going to dump on everybody. Maybe I want to write a four-hour movie that people have to sit through nonstop and can't pause and get up through. People do that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, wonder- I... I, I, I just, just no. go on, go on, Patches. Well, no, I was going to take this in a radical direction. I had a radical uh, question. Uh, ooh. 
I was just going to say, before you do that, because there's not any, you know, whatever. I was just going to say that as long as people keep paying for things, uh, <laughs> it won't matter. Uh, because there are so many stories that people want to tell with feature films um, that have no business being either web series or television series or anything else, um, or vines or tweets uh, with gifts or who cares. You know, like, as long as people keep buying things. We'll be okay. Boy, uh, I, I just uh, <laughs> I just keep thinking that you know we, we've had this similar discussion before, and the the technology forces us to be introspective about this art that we obsess over. Um, but I, now I, I I want to know what is going to be like in like fifty years or like a hundred years, and really pick your brain and um, force you to imagine the future that we're discussing here that we, we think is, the sky's not falling, but things are changing. And I'm really imagining the Book of Eli where paper mm-hmm. doesn't exist. So And he's like oh, hunting for a like paper Bible. That, that far in the future. <laughs> so I'm like, wow. Is, but he's blind. For- oh my god! He's looking oh. for the Bible! Oh. Spoiler, spoiler. Jesus. Spoiler. Yeah, guys, come on. Actual Jesus spoiler. Uh, what, so what's it going to be like in like 50 years, 100 years, when you're old? I, it- even older. Or and dead. Years. You guys are pretty old already. but There will be as many movie theaters as there are currently zoos. But oh, they will well, I was be... going to say opera houses. Oh, okay, yeah. that's good. But they, they, will be, they will be pretty consistently packed by people because they will have such a vast system of revival really? and access prints. Yeah. You think that is the future? Like, just a few... Really busy movie theaters all the time. Well, the nice thing about these things be- making so much money is that uh, a whole bunch of technology is being developed around them. And if that sort of happens, you could sort of, you know, make sure that you have a place in history. It's like, you know, if we didn't come up with the car in the way that we did, and a whole bunch of stuff wouldn't be as popular now. So I think, like, movies will be preserved and stuff. And I do think there'd be, like, curios. Like, I go see good Shakespeare if it's around. Why wouldn't I go see uh, Lawrence of Arabia print 50 years in the future, even if I have to drive a little bit to get there? Or take my hover, Wally hover chair. Yeah. Blah. I don't know. I, I, you know, this is one of those areas where uh, maybe if I thought harder about it, I would have something <laughs> interesting to say about the future. But I, I feel like you have to recognize your... your weaknesses uh and i just i feel so bad at predicting uh what you'll be dead happen. On who- <laughs> I'll, I'll be uh, you know clearly i'll be deep beneath the earth um, i just i i have absolutely no idea dave's dave's conception of the future sounds as viable to me as anything else i don't really give a fuck because in my lifetime um there will always be movies and new movies and old new old movies for me to see. Wow, no care for your children at all. So well my children don't exist yet and when I have them I will raise them and They'll they confront can that own. notion. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are a lot of bridges Whoa. I have to cross before I get there. Patches. Katie. Oh me? Oh, I was just gonna go with my opera house analogy and make it a lot less like zoos and that it's not gonna always be packed, but it's gonna exist as kind of like I mean a niche thing in a way. Like it's a thing that's Maybe not expensive, but it's like a schlep. You got to go out of your way to get there. You got to, you know, make the yeah. effort. Then you again, that's I mean, already the, how it is. You got to pay know, the annual, annual yeah, but membership. There's, there's, but there's like one per city. You pay your annual membership and you go when they hunt down. I mean, celluloid prints, I think that they might be down. over. Like, I don't know that those will exist in 50 years. But a really good digital print will. Well, Kodak, uh, you know, yes, just did up. something to make that seem a lot more likely than it did last week. Judd really? saved film. Yeah, they uh, Kodak... Guaranteed to supply all of the major studios with film for the productions. Wow! So, yeah, it's going to be film sweet. is alive. Film is alive. But and that's kicking. not going to mean that ex- that 
Prince of Lawrence of Arabia. Are well, no, we'll learn how to scan figures. it, and then we'll learn how to three D print it, like a new print. Well, for the foreseeable future, and certainly for the present, film is an infinitely superior archival medium to digital. So, really, if you do want a copy of Lawrence of Arabia fifty years from now, film and the people who are in who, who matter are well aware of this. Uh, know that film is the way to go. Yeah, so Lawrence of Arabia is the last movie you have to worry about. What you have to, the, the you have to worry about rich, which is, is which means it's going to be. You fine. have to worry about blank when, man. When you want to see <laughs> me and Earl and the Dying Girl uh, fifty years from now, you might have some trouble. Yeah, uh, I'm going to want to see Ten Things I Hate About You on uh, <laughs> true celluloid. This is um, the, that's that's the real issue our, our generation's going to face is when we get to like the hey we're putting so much content out there that no one's going to be able to like catalog and recognize it. And then we get to destroy stuff. Isn't that already a problem with like all of our jobs and all the content we put on the internet that is probably not going to exist? Well, I mean, it's a problem in real life, too. There's a news story here in Colorado that last week the last Columbine basement tapes were destroyed because evidence lockup's just sort of done. But it's like, yeah, there's too much stuff. We have too much stuff. We make too much pointless stuff. We won't even know what to call it, though, in the future. Is it television? Is it movies? Someone (laughs) saved the Space Jam website, though, because that needs to be the last site on the internet standing. Actually, there's a, is a, there's a wonderful article in The New Yorker this week about archive.org, the Wayback Machine, and how that works and how that's been chugging along since almost the beginning of the internet. So perhaps we'll have the Wayback Machine for movies someday. With all Everything is going to be on streaming, so someone's probably downloading that somewhere, right? That's the future. That's true. It'll all be implanted into our Google chips. Ooh, Google chips. Mm, mm. Yum. Yum. That does it for Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to talk about the absolute most logical double feature imaginable, The Kingsman Secret Service and Fifty Shades of Grey. Which one will you be seeing this week? They both have anal in them, I should say. Oh, God, you're right. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, fine. Do they? What a, what a great way to end that. Does Fifty Shades have anal? I can't remember. I think I don't think it does. I think he just I fucks believe... her from behind vaginally. Okay, all right. Let's 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 get there. <laughs> this episode now has a profanity warning. We'll get there in uh, Friday's review. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I am the senior writer at Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And for more on this amazing discussion that we've been <laughs> having, or if you have thoughts to contribute, remember we have a website, FightingInTheWarRoom.com, where we post all the episodes. You can leave comments, questions, anything. Share the episodes. That's fightinginthewarroom.com I'm David Ehrlich I am the associate film editor at Time Out New York and the editor at large of Little White Lies you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Time Out US Film and Criterion Corner and all sorts of places you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name D-A-7-E. I'm on Twitter at that handle. I'm also of the internet and on several podcasts on this very channel. Uh, right now, since Game of Thrones is off-season, we're doing a podcast. It's a Q&A about comic books called The Thought Bubble, and it has been super fun. And everybody's questions have been awesome, and you're probably listening to it. So thanks a lot. Tell your friends. And I'm Katie Rich. I'm also of the internet and of Vanity Fair's Hollywood, which still looks new and great, and you should go check it out. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, which is a great place to find our entire podcast at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question. 
In honor of Kingsman Secret Service, what's your favorite comedy action scene? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Bye.